About 200,000 children live in hardship in New Zealand, and social service providers fear poverty is getting worse, not better. This Radio New Zealand Insight looks at how bad the situation really is and the effect it's having on children. Some people may find it hard to believe extreme poverty exists in this country, but those helping the lowest income earners say it does. No one can provide precise figures, but children are going without food and dying of third world diseases, which doctors say aren't seen in any other developed country. It's quite shocking when I see a 15-year-old boy who's dying from bronchiectasis. And, you know, and, is, last... and, and that 15-year-old boy is more likely to be Māori or Pacifica? Yes, correct. Yes, He's more likely to be living in very disadvantaged socioeconomic circumstances. And I don't think I ever saw a child die of bronchiectasis in the 1970s and 1980s and 1990s, but I'm seeing it now. Professor Innes Asher of Auckland University also works as a paediatrician at Starship Hospital. She's appalled by the impact of poverty on children's health. I became very concerned about this issue in the 1990s. I've been a paediatrician since 1979 and I've worked in New Zealand for most of my career you know, as a student and then as a, regist- a paediatric registrar and then as a paediatrician. I've been working in Auckland in the clinical arena in paediatrics actually since 1971, so for 40 years, with a three-year gap out of it at Montreal. And I have seen an upsurging in the last 10 to 15 years of preventable diseases. And we're talking about diseases that you would see in um, Africa and India, like rheumatic fever, bronchiectasis, which is a very damaging condition uh, uh, where the lungs get damaged from having repeated or undertreated pneumonias. We're seeing, it's shocking, we're actually seeing children dying in their teenage years from this. Just a few, but, but some, and others are damaged into their, into their young adult years and die as young parents and or so sick they can't work and it's, it's a frightful disease and it's, it's become increasingly common in New Zealand and our figures are disgraceful. I'm Brent Edwards and in this insight I look at what can be done to stop the increase in the number of poor. Report after report has been released this year pointing out the fragile position of children caught up in poverty. But what is poverty? In this country there's no official poverty line but the one generally used in other similar countries is to say any family earning below 60% of the median household income is in poverty. A tougher measure is to set it at 50% of the median household income, which is currently $1,289 a week. The Social Development Minister, Paula Bennett, wasn't impressed when Labour's Social Development spokesperson, Annette King, raised the issue in Parliament. Which, if any, of the seven key recommendations of the Child Poverty Action Group's report left further behind will the government be implementing? The Honourable Paula Bennett. Uh, Mr Speaker, I would no more implement that report than I would the Labour's so-called policies. But then again, (laughs) that's the same thing. The Child Poverty Action Group, of which Professor Asher is a member, has a seven-point plan to try to address the problem. It says poverty needs to be monitored and targets set to reduce it. A Minister for Children should be appointed. The Working for Families tax credit should be extended to those on benefits. Affordable early childhood education should be made available. Children under six should get free health care 24 hours a day, seven days a week. More affordable and healthy housing should be made available. 
and extra money should be given to schools in poor suburbs to ensure all children have access to a high quality education. Economic hardship can be relative. This is my son's messy room. He hasn't made his bed or anything. <laughs> and here's my room and the little people playing PlayStation in my room. Jasmine Tankink lives in the Porua suburb of Waitangirua. She and her partner have three young children. He's a meat worker and when he's working night shifts he earns $22 an hour. But during the slow season he works less and his pay rate drops to just $14 an hour when he's on day shift, making it difficult for the family to make ends meet. Just paying the rent takes a big chunk of their income. We pay about $300 a week. When he is on a good wage then we're sort of left with quite a bit left over and we do get working for families which is really good. Um, but it's just sort of this, at this time of the year, like if he comes home with $400, you know, that's only $100 after the rent. And even with family assistance, that's not, you know, after you do groceries and pay power and, you know, especially winter power bills. So how does the family make do? We use our credit card and we go without stuff. What, what yeah. sort of stuff do you go without? Um, just, uh, just outings, um... You know, just, just treats, um, things, just special things for ourselves. So it's just pretty, pretty basic living, like food and, you know, rent and bills. But that's about it. And if, you know, if something comes up, then we have to use our credit card and then just pay it off when we do have money. What about the kids? Are you able to, you know, get them to, to swimming lessons and, and other sort of activities like that? Um, not not really, we are quite lucky in the area that we live in, um, there are a lot of affordable things, like my children do music lessons which are $12 a term, but there are things like, you know, like swimming is about $100 a term, so we can't afford things like that, and even sports um, registration um, is sometimes unaffordable, and you know, things like rugby boots and, and, and even petrol, because petrol's quite a big a big deal. But Jasmine Tankink knows there are many families worse off than hers. Most cleaners, for instance, earn just $13.50 an hour. So, so what is a typical day's work for a cleaner? Cleaning bathrooms, collecting rubbish, cleaning general areas, sweeping, vacuuming, mopping and a lot of walking. My name is Lopai Nikaufisi. I'm a cleaner for the Auckland University. I I live in um, Avondale in Auckland. So how difficult is it to live on $13.50 an hour? It's it's really difficult because I sometimes I can't afford to um, buy the basic food that we can live on and sometimes I can't send my kids on school trips, things like that. They, um, how many kids have you got? I've got five. Five? Yeah. So you, you have a partner at home? Yes, and my partner, he just got laid off work too. So it's a bit difficult at the moment. For the Kofesi family, life is tough. There are days that we go with our food. How do the kids manage that? Um, well, I'll just tell them, well, OK, wait for Nana or wait for Dad and they'll end up sleeping after that. I just have to figure out something. Do you get some family support from the, the wider family? or is um, a... Sometimes, because I can't contact my family, because we don't have a phone, like, 
the gear next. Yeah. The cost, so you don't. <laughs> it's okay. Sometimes we have mobile phones, but like we don't have enough sometimes to top up every time it expires. So I can't get hold of my family all the time. Like with me, I need of food and some money for taking the kids to the doctors or something like that. Poverty is not unique to New Zealand as a developed nation, but based on international comparisons, the view that New Zealand is a great country to bring up children appears to be a myth. The Ministry of Social Development has compared deprivation rates here with those in Europe, using the European Union Deprivation Index. The EU index canvasses nine items and measures whether households have them or not. They include a phone, colour TV, washing machine, private car, a meal with meat, fish or chicken every second day, a warm house, one week's holiday away from home, paying the rent, mortgage and utility services on time, and the ability to face unexpected expenses of $1,500. It then uses those statistics to compare child hardship with overall population hardship. Any score over one means children are suffering more from poverty than the rest of the population. On that scale, New Zealand scores 1.4, equal to Ireland. Only the United Kingdom scores worse. But Innes Asher, a paediatrician at Starship, says children's health in the UK is still better than here. She explains why. Our experience would suggest that that the depth of poverty has been sustained for greater periods for many of the families. The housing issue is a really crucial one and they don't have such a problem with the housing stock in the UK, either the quality or the amount of council housing, I think. And the, the third point is the access to primary health care is, is absolutely a no-brainer. In, in, in the United Kingdom, it's free 24 hours a day, seven days a week for children under the age of 18. Complete no-brainer. That's a big obstacle here. Along with poverty comes rising income inequality. It's one of the key grievances that have prompted the series of protest occupations starting on Wall Street and spreading around the world, including to Auckland's Aotea Square. Protesters like this man say they felt forced to take action. This is, uh, I think, it's one of the biggest occupations in Auckland since Bastion Point, and it's in the in the city centre. And images like this are probably similar in cities throughout the world. The policy advisor with the Council of Christian Social Services, Paul Barber, says since the 1980s, the gap between the poorest and wealthiest in this country has increased. New Zealand's been world leader in growth and income inequality. We've seen the fastest growth, growth in the difference between the rich and the poor uh, over the, the last 25 years. And uh, we went from being one of the most equal countries among the wealthy countries of the world, the OECD countries, to being one of the most unequal. And we did that in a short space of time. Paul Barber spells out how the gap has grown. If you look at the actual data, you'll see that the top incomes, the top deciles, have gone up by um, after adjusting for inflation, so on by around 25% over that time period, those couple of decades. While those on the lowest incomes, their incomes have actually decreased. So um, the gap hasn't closed, um, and those at the bottom have not benefited. And I mean, I, I guess one of the arguments, those that are most vulnerable are, are children. And Absolutely. There's a higher proportion of children in low-income households in New Zealand. There are uh, children uh, 
high proportion of children are in benefit uh, households that uh, rely on benefit income and um, a higher proportion of children are in the uh, lower income households. Before the last election, the National Party leader John Key expressed concern about what he called the growing underclass. But has the problem improved in the last three years? Look, I think it depends on how you measure that. Um, you know, the, what we know about recessions is they disproportionately affect uh, low-income people and younger people. And that's for a variety of economic reasons, but it's primarily because often um, a household that might be supported by overtime and the likes might lose that overtime, one person might lose their job. Um, there's a variety of different reasons. So that can have some impact. And you know, in recent weeks I've visited a number of budgeting agencies and food banks and I've asked them about you know, what they've seen over the last three years and I think it's fair to say they've seen an increase in um, people accessing their services. So that's, that's, uh, that, that situation is there. John Key says the national-led government has done its best to help people in poverty. National standards as a starting point is ultimately uh, the tool that we want to use to ensure that we can map the progress of a child as they go through school. We substantially increased early childhood education, for instance, and particularly targeted Pacifica Māori as um, an access point where we know there's lower levels of participation. Uh, you know, I think there are a number of the employment schemes that we ran that would have, you know, again, would have helped. Um, you know, there's a variety of different things we did. I mean, even in, at, at one level, um, we threw you know more money uh, and uh, more ch law changes around victims' rights, all of those kinds of things. Um, again, sometimes we see low-income families disproportionately being affected by crime. Uh, so there's a variety of different things that we've done. Um, we've increased the immunisation rates in health uh, substantially for under twos. We've targeted things like rheumatic fever. Uh, so I think you know, across the board we've done a range of things, but it's a long, slow job and there's a lot more to be done. The Auckland City Missioner, Diane Robertson, sees needy families daily. We've had a, an increase, it's just um, over the last five years, the, the number of people just increases year on year. And in the last two years, that increase has been more rapid. Can you sort of put numbers on that? What's the sort of? Well, I think you know, a couple of years ago it was seven thousand families a year. Um, last year it was nine thousand families. In Manarewa, in South Auckland, Ruby Duncan runs the social services provider IOSIS. She too sees an increase in demand from struggling families. Poverty is definitely getting worse. I mean, I, as I say, was overseas for about ten years, living in a third world country in a squatter community. So I understood poverty from a third world context quite well, uh, where there is no benefit, no housing New Zealand, no nothing. So I've seen children die uh, regularly of diseases they shouldn't die of. So I thought I understood poverty and I thought we were a wealthy country. So that was an interesting perspective for me in coming back to New Zealand after that 10 years. So how long have you been back? Oh, 17 years. So when I came back here and came to live in Auckland and and started to get involved with families here, it's a very different face in poverty here. Diane Robertson explains why so many people come to the Auckland City Mission for help. People actually see food as being almost a disposable part of their, their income. We pay the rent, we pay the power, we pay some of the... Whatever it is they have to pay off, they'll pay a little bit of each of those each month to stop their power being turned off or to stop being evicted. And then what is left is what's available for food. So they don't say, this is what I need for food, and then the rest of it will, will disperse. They disperse it and then say that's what's left, and often it's just nowhere near enough to feed a family.
Are these largely beneficiary families or are they, are they low working families as well? It's probably 13% of the people we see are in work and the rest are on some form of benefit. The National Party leader John Key believes getting people off benefits and into work is a significant factor in reducing poverty. The government's welfare working group also believes the path out of poverty is through work and has set a target of reducing beneficiary numbers by 100,000 over the next decade. But poverty isn't restricted to beneficiaries and official figures estimate two out of five families in poverty are working. In the term of the last Labour-led government, the number of people on benefits dropped from 401,000 in 1999 to a low of 261,000 in 2007, a drop of 140,000. Since then, the economic slump has pushed benefit numbers up again. This sole mother with two children, who would like to be known just as Kelly, is also a cleaner and lives in Manarewa. She's keen to work. But how difficult is it to live on $13.50 an hour? Very, very hard. It's very hard. Constantly, you're probably really running at a deficit every week just to make ends meet. I mean, the way I see it is that, you know, you're trying to contribute to the economy by working, and for what? To struggle, and struggle, and struggle. And I'm not talking about luxuries in life, I'm talking about basic necessities of life. The Council of Trade Unions economist Bill Rosenberg doesn't entirely agree with the Welfare Working Group's view that just getting people into work will get them out of poverty. That's a very simplistic view, and, and the good authorities... Uh, to say that, yes, it's important that people do uh, have work. It's it's good for a whole lot of reasons. But if it's, if it's uh, poor work, if it's low, low wages, uh, insecure work, employers not treating you with, with respect, bad working conditions and the rest, then it's actually just as bad as being out of work and, and can do a, a lot of damage as well. So it's not simply getting people into work, it's getting people into decent work that is the problem. Dr Rosenberg says dealing with poverty does need to involve looking at benefit levels. One way or another, beneficiary families are long overdue an increase in the incomes they receive. I don't have a clear view on whether that's through the working for families type of mechanism or something else, but one way or another, some of the deepest poverty still is amongst those beneficiary families, and, and so it's long overdue for addressing. The Auckland City Missioner, Diane Robertson, rejects suggestions people go on benefits as a lifestyle choice. No, I don't. I don't at all. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm becoming more adamant as time goes on. Majority of families we see are living in situations where, because of their poor educational backgrounds, because of their poor health, because the rest of the family are living in the same circumstances, because of the neighbourhoods they're living in, they individually have very little hope of rising out of poverty. <laughs> I'm the chair of uh, Te Kahui Manaririki, which is a Māori child advocacy organisation, and we've been in existence for the last four years, and we started off focusing particularly on the death of Nia Glassie in uh, Rotorua. Honei Kaa says poverty particularly affects Māori and Pacific families. When you get a statistic that tells you there are 200,000 children living below the, the poverty line, and then you have a look at that, break that statistic down further, and 48% of those are Māori and Pacific children, 
you know you've got a problem because when I can I know we're in Auckland here I can take I can show you the areas that you would find that Mangere particularly Otara Manurewa and he too rejects suggestions families struggling on benefits have somehow made a lifestyle choice only the rich can say that only those who are well off can say that and it's a judgment that I find unhelpful in any situation because though there may be an element of truth in it it doesn't necessarily help in the struggle to actually give people an opportunity to pick themselves up and maybe discover that there is a better side of life and uh, comments like that I want to put them on the back burner. In poor households children go without food, living conditions are often below standard with homes cold and damp and many fail to get the medical care they need. Paul Barber says it's not only bad for children but also represents a waste of public money. There are recent data that shows us it costs us billions and billions of dollars a year now to our um, health, social and economic growth by having so many children in poverty in this country. We've got a choice to make um, every day, both as individuals as in, in our social and working relationships as well as in the political decisions we make. We've got a choice whether we want to um, take steps to reduce those gaps or to accept their, that they grow or remain as high as they are now. But how can the roughly 200,000 children in hardship be lifted out of poverty? The extension of Working for Families tax credits has helped a number of working families. But many remain mired in poverty and it provides no help to beneficiary families. Social service providers say it's not simply a matter of throwing money at the problem, although more money is needed. The Auckland City Missioner, Diane Robertson, says there are no easy answers. Is it a matter of throwing a lot of money? Is it a matter of improving particular services or increasing benefits? I don't think we actually quite know the answer to it yet. There have been calls that there should be a sort of a multi-party sort of consensus on the issue. Do you? I think that's what that there needs to be a multi-party. I think there needs to be a clear mandate of what we're going to do. But I think also that involves, and we we often we often think about doing it to our clients about making them well or making them better or making them budget, what we don't do enough of perhaps is actually sitting down and consulting with them about what it is they believe they need to make these changes. Mr Speaker, um, talk about the politics of envy. Quite frankly, if that member was still running policies like she had 20 years ago, she'd be selling state assets. In the white-hot atmosphere of Parliament and the partisan politics which dominate, there seems little chance of a political consensus about how poverty should be reduced. Trade unions are pushing for the minimum wage to be lifted to $15 an hour. Kelly from Manarewa would welcome an extra $1.50 an hour in her wage packet. That would make a difference of approximately an extra $60 to $80 a week, which might not sound like a lot to some people, but it would mean perhaps my boy can go and play touch this summer. Maybe we get to eat a little bit better. If I need to see the doctor, I can go and see the doctor. I mean, a recent example, I had to um, go to hospital. I was taken in an ambulance because I was sick. I was discharged in the middle of the night and said, I can't get home, obviously. And I was told, well, here's a taxi chit, but we don't like to give them out because people spend their money on drugs and booze. But you can have one this month, but you'll never get another one again. But the chief executive of Business New Zealand, Phil O'Reilly, says raising the minimum wage won't help those on low incomes get out of poverty. You need to also make sure that employers find them affordable to hire. Otherwise, they'll just go and hire someone 
who's already got those skills and who's already got some experience. So this is a complex issue, but if you're going to buy the idea, and I hope everybody would, that the best way in New Zealand of getting people out of poverty is to make sure that they've got a job, then you've really got to make sure that you can get them into their first job or get them into those early jobs. And that's where these exclusionary effects of having a minimum wage that's too high come into, come into play, because if it's too high, they simply won't get that first step on the lowest rung of the ladder. But in the meantime, low-income earners, as well as beneficiaries, struggle to support their families. Kelly says she's not asking for much and she's not expecting people on high incomes to suffer. It's not about um, resenting anyone that has a better job and being paid better for it so much because it's not that they don't deserve it, but we don't deserve to live like this either. Diane Robertson works on the front line of poverty. Has New Zealand reached a crisis point? I think we are moving backwards in terms of a lot of the outcomes and for, for families. We, we have some... Poor, poor health outcomes for children living in poverty. We have poor educational outcomes for young Maori children, those sorts of things. And if we, if these are all indicators of poverty and we say that a lot of them are moving in the wrong direction or not moving fast in the right direction, then maybe that is a crisis. But it's certainly, I would say it's a watershed and we should be saying we need to be doing things differently if we want it to work. Ruby Duncan of IOSIS, who's also the president of the Council of Christian Social Services, is adamant the problem of poverty and income inequality is getting worse. And she has a stark warning about what's happening to young people trapped in poverty. It's getting bigger. That's all you can say. It's getting bigger, and I think it is getting angrier, and that's the fear. So young people have you know, 30% unemployment, especially in a community like this, it's probably higher. They have no hope. They have no expectation that there's anything they can do to earn their own money. So what are they going to do? So the whole gang thing, and they are angry. They feel hard done by. They see other people who don't live that far away who have stuff that they can never have and will get the jobs that they can never get. So they are angry. They are despairing. And that is not a good formula. Honei Carr is worried too. Poverty touches us all, regardless of race, colour or creed. Uh, that there is such a high proportion of Māori and Pacific people ought to be of, of concern. And I wouldn't label it as a deliberate attempt on the racist policies, but it just so happens that when you're already uh, vulnerable, the vulnerability increases as the economy tightens. And most of those who are already vulnerable are brown. So we're building, literally building, a political time bomb in our midst. Ruby Duncan says people can't turn a blind eye to poverty in New Zealand. This is not a, a choice. You can't just say, well, it doesn't look like anybody's going to do anything much about it, so we'll walk away. We have to fight as hard as we can for those who don't have. Children are dying. Children are dying. Children are being killed in their own homes. You know, we know all about that. How much do we care? Lopa Eni Kofisi, the cleaner struggling to support a family of seven on $13.50 an hour, makes this appeal. There is poverty out there and raising the minimum wage would be really, really helpful to, especially the island families, because there are people that really struggling more than I am at the moment. I'm Brent Edwards. And that's Insight for this week. If you would like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or tweet us at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that programme 
It was produced by Philippa Tolley and technical production by William Saunders.